Welcome, and thank you for listening to the podcast of North Etowah Baptist Church. Visit us online at northetowah.org. Rather than church being a place where people far from God are met with shame, guilt, and condemnation, we believe Jesus leads us to be a family that extends His grace, mercy, and forgiveness to everyone. We hope you enjoy today's service. Well, here in a moment, we'll be looking in the book of 3 John. Uh, if you don't know where that is, if you start in the back with Revelation, uh, turn to Jude, which is before that, and then 3 John before that. It's probably just a page or two in your Bible. If you get to the maps, you've gone too far. So come back just to the left of Revelation. From time to time, I'll find myself looking at, at old photographs or high school yearbooks or old church directories or, or I'll come across an old newspaper clipping that we've kept and it will cause people to come to mind. And if you're like me when you do that, you, you'll feel just a great flood of memories and emotions some good and some are painful. I remember grandparents and other family members who have gone on before us. In particular, many of you knew him, my grandfather, Jim Rayburn. I believe he loved his job on the railroad more than anyone has ever loved their job. And even after he retired, People would visit, and that's all he'd want to talk about was railroading. And I remember how painful it was to see Alzheimer's turn him into a man that we still knew, but who hardly knew us. But there's one thing I'll always remember about him. In sickness or in health, you never had to wonder what was on his mind. He was sure to let you know. Amen. And the legacy continues. <laughs> I remember friends and family members who I've not seen in a while. And I, I think about them and remember them. About school teachers who, whose lives were dedicated to be sure that we were educated, well-rounded members of society. I think about these people, and I remember, then I wonder also, how do they remember me? And I'm not, I'm not ignorant to my own mortality. I wonder how I will be remembered. You know, a, um, a short trip down a long ladder will sometimes make you think about your mortality. And I have thought about that in recent weeks. Things happen and they make you think. But I wonder if I were, if I were to die right now, how would you remember me? Now please don't answer out loud because I may not want to know. But we look at the Bible and we see names all through the Bible of people who were faithful to God's work 
and some others that we don't remember as fondly. We remember Noah and the ark and remember David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, Moses and the Ten Commandments, Judas and his betrayal, Thomas and his doubting, all of Paul's missionary journeys, and our Lord Jesus dying on the cross and rising again to provide a way to eternal salvation, just to name a few. And of all these people we remember, none of them were perfect except for Jesus Christ. We see after Noah exited the ark, he had a moral failure. David gave in to his carnal desires towards Bathsheba. And then on the other hand, I think about Judas Iscariot. Yes, he betrayed the Lord, but I'm sure he even had some redeeming qualities because when Jesus said in, in Matthew 26, 21, that one of them would betray him, all eyes did not turn to Judas. They didn't know who it would be. So he had to be on the surface an okay guy. We remember the Apostle John. We know he was the beloved disciple. He was a man who was obsessed with God's love and the need for Christians to show love to one another. Contemporary Christianity is often painted as a religion of charity and benevolence because of what John wrote. But we also see in his Gospels and three epistles that he was also adamant about truth and did not tolerate falsehood. He expected Christians to live according to their confessions. Matthew seven sixteen states and and the Apostle John also confirms that by their fruits you will know them. So here in this tiny letter, this tiny epistle of third John, we're introduced to three individuals here that all we know about them for all of history is in this letter. First, we're introduced to Gaius. He is the recipient of this letter, and we read about him in verses 1 through 8. It says, The elder, which is John, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now Gaius, what we know about him, he was apparently a good friend of the Apostle John. It's possible that he was a leader of a house church, or he could have been um, leader over a small group of congregations that John ultimately was the overseer. We don't know. All we know is what's written here. 
In verse two, John was praying that Gaius would be as well in body as he was in spirit. Now, does this mean that he was physically ill? Again, we don't know, but we do know that he was spiritually healthy. Now, I'm not one to stand here and lecture about diet and exercise, as we can well see. Amen. But both spiritual and physical health takes a lot of hard work. Our bodies need good food and not junk. It needs exercise and proper rest to be healthy. And in the same way, our spirits must be nourished by God's word and kept away from the the junk food, the garbage of the world. And our faith, our faith must be exercised daily and our spirits must take time to rest in the Lord. You know, it's odd that we wouldn't feed our bodies only once or twice a week. But we so often do look the lady that Ann spoke about that the preacher left a spoon in her Bible and after weeks she hadn't read her Bible. Why do we starve our souls when we wouldn't starve our bodies? Regular encounters with God and consistent prayer, the not forsaking opportunities to gather with others in worship help keep us in good spiritual shape. So my question now is how is your spiritual health? If, if I, like the Apostle John, prayed for your physical health to match your spiritual health, would I be doing you a favor or would I be praying to your detriment? Verses 3 and 4 says, Therefore I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So what was going on here, in these early days of the church, you didn't have an overabundance of seminary trained pastors leading the churches. This group of brothers that John mentions This was probably a group, or there could have been several groups that traveled from different churches. They were preachers, they were missionaries, all sent by John to travel between these churches. Well, when they came to Gaius' church, he received them well, and John is overjoyed by the testimony that they brought back to him, found out that he was, that Gaius was walking in the truth and not fallen away as some others had done. He had earned a good reputation. He lived consistently. He was not trying to please the world, but was living to please God. You know, consistent living is very respectable. I would be more apt to respect an atheist who is consistent about their beliefs, or rather lack thereof, than I would be someone who claims to be a Christian on Sunday and tells dirty jokes around the water cooler on Monday. Consistency is very respectable. Gaius welcomed the brothers and was hospitable to them, although they were total strangers. John exhorted him to to take care of, 
of God's missionaries and preachers and evangelists. And not to just give them enough to get by, but he says, in a manner worthy of God. The brothers went out traveling in God's name, trusting God alone to provide for their needs. In verse 7, it says that, that when they went out, that they wouldn't accept anything from the Gentiles. Well, in this context, Gentiles is not referring to non-Jewish people. Because for one, Gaius is a Greek name. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. But the Gentiles in this context means the non-believers. So God's work is to be supported by God's people. We shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't solicit unbelievers to do God's work, but if they're compelled to give out of their free will unsolicited, that's okay. But we're not to solicit them. Our God is huge, and he owns everything in creation. So why would we want unbelievers to think that this God that we worship that owns everything can't provide for his mission. Who we support financially says a lot about us. Supporting missionaries and preachers of the truth shows that we believe in their message and align with God's mission. But yet these false preachers and heretics oftentimes you see them on television, they'll be asking for money, say, Send me so much money and God will, will grant you sevenfold. Well, they don't believe that or they'd be giving their money away. But they will bring judgment on everyone who supports them. Luke ten sixteen says to be opposed to God's message and God's messenger is to be opposed to God. But to receive the Lord's people in hospitality is the same as receiving the Lord. You know, I'm personally convicted by this good example that Gaius shows here. For the sake of the gospel, he was hospitably inconvenienced and financially burdened. But I want convenience, don't you? I want to be a disciple on my terms. You know, why is it that when people fall ill and they need a hospital visit, it's always late at night? Why can't it be after, you know, we're up during the day and got the day going and it's convenient for us to go? Or why is it when I'm out doing something fun with my family that, that our paths always seem to cross with this lost person? I don't, I don't want to deal with that while I'm out having a good time. And I don't have the time or the money for everybody that, that wants a handout. And I sure could get a lot more done around the house. Haley, say amen. Amen. I could get a lot more done around the house or spend some more time on the water or doing something different if those people at church would just quit scheduling things and they expect me to be at every time. Following Christ is seldom convenient, if ever. A little inconvenience in this life 
may lead to so much more in the next. So let's be inconvenienced for the gospel's sake and reap the blessings that follow. So how do we remember Gaius? We remember him as one with an open heart and an open home. And according to Matthew 10, 41, at the judgment seat of Christ, he will share in the reward of the preachers he was hospitable to and reap a preacher's reward from God. But after commending Gaius, John turns his attention to the bad example of Diotrephes. Verses 9 through 11 read, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. You see, Gaius had welcomed the traveling group of brothers, the preachers, missionaries, based on John's letter of recommendation. But Diotrephes disregarded the letter. He would not allow them to speak in his church. And anyone who supported them, he put out of the church. He liked to put himself first. And he did not acknowledge John's apostolic authority. He spoke all kinds of lies and rumors against John and the brothers. In short, Diotrephes was a church bully. In his mind, church was about comfort and preference. He paid his tithes, so he was entitled to have things his way. The choir director had better sing the songs that he liked. When it came time to spend money, he would be the first to object unless it was for his pet project. He was the kind of guy you hated to see walk into a committee meeting. And his presence in business meeting was sure to make your stomach churn just wondering what it was going to be this month. But the sad thing is, Dr. Feast probably thought that he was doing the right thing that he was, he was working to further the gospel, but in reality, he had no clue the damage that he was doing to the body of Christ. Here's how he operated. These little secret meetings would start, followed by the wicked nonsense of rumors and lies. Once he got mad, he didn't care who he stepped on or who got hurt. He was on a personal crusade to straighten out the church to his liking. Preachers and those who supported preachers of the true gospel had no place in his church. As far as he's concerned, he had been there long before they got there and he'd be there long after they left. Remember how we learned earlier 
that to reject God's messengers and God's message is to reject God himself? You know, diatrophies may not have necessarily stuck out as a problem. He was probably pals with everyone. He would shoot the breeze, but, but as he would talk, he would work his ideas into the conversation in hopes of gaining another ally, a very sly operator indeed. Again, remember when Jesus told the disciples that one of them would betray him, they didn't point and stare at Judas because Judas blended in so well with the true believers. So my question is, if Diotrephes wanted to blend in so well, if he wanted to make everybody think everyone that, that he was okay, why did he resist John and his authority and, and their supporters? Well, the best illustration I can think of is, have you ever walked into a dark room, turned on the light and watched the cockroaches and other vermin scatter? A church bully can't stand true light being cast on their works. Their only defense is to keep the light bearers away and continue to work in the dark. And after 2,000 or so years of church history, churches are still having the same problems they did at the beginning. We still have bullies. You know, I've seen church members or, or staff members called, the congregation saying, we will follow your leadership. But then they were run off when the people weren't led according to their terms. Friends, we cannot ask someone to lead us how the Lord leads them and then get mad when they do it. Oh, me. You know, I heard a story one time about a man who had been married and divorced and married and divorced and so on. And after his ninth divorce, he was talking to his best friend and he was saying just these women he'd been married to, they just, they didn't understand what they were giving up and he just couldn't understand why there wasn't a wife to be found for him and just, just on and on. Well, his friend, he knew these ex-wives and knew that they were all respectable, good ladies. There wasn't, they weren't crazy or anything. He thought a moment and he said, you know, you're my friend and I'm going to tell you the truth. You've been married nine times. The problem could be you. Have you ever thought the problem in our churches today is not necessarily those who we call but those who are already here? For example, we could start with an all-new staff. We could go through a church rebranding or replanning or whatever the, the popular term is at the time. But as long as the folks in the pews remain prideful 
and arrogant and egotistical and unrepentant, not one nary thing will change. Has any church ever called a, pa a perfect staff member? No, they have not. They all have feet of clay. And I would never make the claim that anyone other than Jesus Christ himself is infallible. However, I believe if Jesus stood here today, we'd find a thing or two to complain about him. We have got to get on the same page of furthering the gospel. Minutia and preferences, it's got to stop. John wrote that when he arrived, he was going to deal with diatrophies. He did not tolerate the falsehood and the lies, and we shouldn't either. A church without discipline is no more than a country club. And friends, I'm terrible at golf. I don't want to be a member of a country club. I want to be a member of a church that is real about the mission of the living God. John wasn't going to bully the bully, but he was going to make sure that the problem was dealt with. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take two or three others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. See, the point of discipline is not to run people off from the church, but to give an opportunity for repentance. So I want to ask you to do this for me. If someone has offended you, if, some, if someone has made you upset, first... Pray about it. Pray and be sure that you have a valid reason for being upset. You may find that you've either overreacted or you took something the wrong way. It's possible. Second, pray for the person who wronged you. Pray that God would soften their heart, that when you go to speak to them, they are receptive. And who knows? God may soften their heart to where they come to you first and apologize. Stranger things have happened. Next, go to them instead of telling everyone else. You might just be surprised how open and receptive your brother or sister is when you humbly confront them. But if they're not, continue to pray and next time take one or two people with you. If they still won't listen, it's time to publicly go before the church. And then if there's still no repentance for the health of the church, that offender should be dismissed from the fellowship. Now, I know it's not popular to preach or practice church discipline today. But I tell you, I would a whole lot rather be held accountable for my faults now and have the opportunity to repent now than to wait and let the Lord deal with me when he returns. I pray that we will seek repentance 
and resolution with those we disagree with. And that bullies would repent and get on board with a gospel mission. But see, there's another possibility here. In 3 John verse 11, John was saying that Diotrephes was not necessarily, he was not a backslider, but rather he was a false convert. If you contrast this to verse 4, Diotrephes is one who has been found not walking in the truth. How can a truly converted, repentant Christian do anything that stands in the way of the gospel or resist one of his messengers? This is not judgment, this is discernment. Matthew 15, or I'm sorry, Matthew 12, 25 through 26 says, Knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In the same way, a divided church will eventually shut its doors. The church, the body of Christ, will stand for eternity. But any local fellowship, ours included, could certainly die. Don't let pride keep you out of heaven and our church ineffective. It doesn't matter if you've been a church member for a day or for 70 years. If you aren't truly saved, you're headed to an eternal torment. There are church members in both heaven and hell, but only Christians enter heaven. It's time for us to get right, to get real, and to get serious about winning our community for Christ. No more games. The Great Commission is greater than our great opinions. Michael Catt, he's the senior pastor of Sherwood Baptist Church. That's the church that produced the movies Fireproof and Facing the Giants and other ones. Wrote an article recently concerning the seemingly imminent demise of the Southern Baptist Convention. And in that article, he included a quote by Vance Havner about Isaiah 21, 11 through 12. And here's what he said. He said, we are certainly in the middle of a pitch black moral and spiritual night. We need a watchman and we need to know what of the night. God's prophets are his watchmen. A watchdog that will not bark is not worth having. And a preacher who will not warn men of sin is a traitor within the camp. Every pastor is God's watchman for he watches for men's souls as they that must give account. And if a man claims to be a watchman, it is expected of him that he should know something about the night, how we got into it, where we are, and where we go from here. It is evident to all who have eyes to see that we are in the midst of a moral and spiritual, social and political, national and international darkness. I visit the churches and find the saints who were born in revival fires are living in the smoke, that the glory has departed the sanctuary. Today, 
in our pastor's absence, I serve as God's watchman for our church. Not because I'm angry at anyone, but because I'm heartbroken over a lack of spiritual fruit. A hateful, vindictive spirit would not have led me to this message, but because of love, I want you to be saved, truly, once for all, saved. Now before I go any further, do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that if you disagree with someone, that if you disagree with a pastor, or if you don't like certain music or this or that, I'm not saying that you're not a Christian. So don't leave here saying that. What I am saying is we've got to be truly saved. We've got to stand behind God's word. If there is heresy or, or moral failure, we need to deal with it. But friends, let God search you and see. See where your spiritual health is. If you're not saved, don't let pride stand in the way. There's too little time left to keep playing the games. And to those who are saved, our revival fires too have been reduced to smoke. And if we're not careful soon, we will be treading the ashes if we do not repent and be the church God has called us to be. We don't know the result of John's dealings with Dotrephes. There's no further record. He may have repented or he may have resisted and been put out of the church. Either way, for history, he has been remembered as a church bully, but he was given a choice. You have a choice. How will you be remembered? Thirdly and finally, John speaks of Demetrius in verse 12. It says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. There's only one verse here about Demetrius. John is, in the, pur the purpose of his letter was to recommend Demetrius to Gaius to allow him to speak in the church because he is one who speaks truth and was worthy to stand before the congregation. And John and his associates and Demetrius' own lifestyle and doctrine spoke well of him. He could have been one of those traveling brethren that was mentioned earlier in the letter. In closing the letter, John hoped to speak to Gaius soon at which point when he came, he was going to deal with Diotrephes. And there was the promise here that if Gaius didn't receive Demetrius, he too would face John in the same way that Diotrephes would. It is abundantly clear that opposition to God's message and his messengers is a very, very serious matter indeed. 
So how do you hope to be remembered? Is how you hope to be remembered different from how you will actually be remembered? I want to be remembered as a good father, husband, and friend, but more importantly, I want to be remembered not for anything I've said or done, but what Christ has done in me. I cannot emphasize enough how dangerous it is to have yourself convinced that you are a Christian when you are really not. Nor can I overemphasize the danger in opposing God because his enemies will face his full wrath on judgment day. Only those who have truly repented and placed their faith and trust in Jesus will be spared from the wrath to come. But today, in this moment, you're here. There's still time, and you have an opportunity. You have a choice to make. And I wonder, what will it be? Pray with me. God, I pray that, that anyone who is here today, God, that does not know you as Lord and Savior, God, I pray that this would be the day of their salvation. Father, it's not in me to judge anyone. Far be it from me. But God, my heart breaks that if there's, if there's someone who just prayed a prayer sometime or, or, or whatever and did not truly repent of their sins and trust in you, that's got themselves convinced that they're okay, God, that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that we as a church we're treading water. God, convict each and every one of us that the revival fires would be rekindled and that this petty stuff that we worry about that we will put it far out of our minds. Because if we're busy about your work, that stuff is not going to matter. God, I pray that you would make it so. God, I pray that if there's anyone that needs to make a decision, God, that they would come forward now at this time of invitation, or if not, whether they come down or not, God, I pray that this is the day of salvation and revival for North Etowah Baptist Church. In Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the services at North Etowah Baptist Church. If you made a decision for Christ today, head over to northetowah.org slash contact. Fill out the form and someone from our staff will be quick to contact you. Not to mention, we'd love to worship with you. All worship times and other activities can be found on our website. Thanks again for listening and may God bless you.